Our passage today is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we are continuing in our series on Christian warfare. And as I shared last week, we're continuing in our study of Satan. This is uh, really four sections on Satan. And again, I have to emphasize the reason we're talking about him in particular is because the Bible does. He's not someone that we should ultimately fear, but we must be aware of his powers. And some of you might have experienced different manifestations of the devil's schemes. Sometimes it's even physical. And perhaps you've witnessed it yourself personally, or you know someone, and this has happened. We've spoken much about the attacks of the devil on the heart and the mind. And we're going to continue talking about that next week, as well as in a few weeks to come when we talk about the darts, the flaming darts of the enemy. But the Bible is very clear in showing that there are various physical and supernatural manifestations of Satan and his demons within people. Jesus and the apostles often cast out demons and bring healing to those who are enslaved by them. And perhaps you've read passages like this as some of the women are going to be discussing in Mark 5. You read it and you think, well, that's a historical event. Yes, I believe it happened, but that's for a bygone era. Perhaps some of you read a passage about demon possession. You think that's mythological or that's meant for the movies, but that doesn't really happen today. As we've shared for the past few weeks that to ignore the devil and his works is to do so at your own great peril. So we must never underestimate him. We must never be lulled to sleep and indifference when we think about the devil and his schemes. So today we're going to be looking at one area of the devil's domain, which is individuals. And then next week we'll talk about the entities and nations that he also holds sway. We remember that according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he is the God of this world. And then in John 12, 31, he is the ruler of this world. So it should not surprise us that Satan controls, manipulates people, things, entities in this world, because the Bible says so clearly he rules over it. We will examine people this week and things next week. So first, let's look at people. We know about Satan and his rule from this passage, and 
In particular, we're going to look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For Paul, to be a Christian means you are a fighter. You are involved in a cosmic clash. You're involved in a spiritual war. Once you were born again, you're born again into an army. And it's for this very reason that Paul writes verse 12 very specifically in a certain way. Notice it's against, against, and against. And he doesn't do that haphazardly. He doesn't just use those words randomly. He wants us to know that he is emphasizing that there is a certain force that is against you, against Christ, against Christ's kingdom. And Paul wants it emblazoned on your minds that there is someone against you and he is tirelessly at work to keep you away from Jesus. And he will not stop until or unless he succeeds. Paul also uses certain words and phrases. He uses it quite often, actually a couple of times in Ephesians. He uses the word rulers and authorities twice in Ephesians. And in the other instance, clearly, as well as in this instance, he's referring to demonic forces. We know this because Jesus encountered demonic forces as soon as he came into the world I mean, consider Herod who tries to kill this infant Christ. And the way he does so is to just kill any baby, any male. Does it, does that just come out of nowhere? Is that just simply the, the machinations of a crazy man? Or are there spiritual forces at work? Paul is telling us that there are spiritual forces that are impacting physical, um, entities. In Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is proclaiming the coming, both the coming of the savior into the world himself to save the world. But at the same time, he's also saying he's putting Satan and his demonic forces on high alert and saying, this is the beginning of the end for you. And so it should not surprise us that once Jesus' public ministry began, he was constantly opposed and harassed by Satan and his demons. We see this at the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptations in the desert. But also throughout his whole ministry, wherever he went, there were demons that were manifesting itself because spiritual demonic activity almost always parallels the work of God's spirit in the lives of his people. It makes sense. The devil knows real threats. And so he is most disturbed and actively engaged when he is most threatened. He only manifests himself fully when he has to. He doesn't desire to do that. He does it when he's forced to, when he feels as though it's sort of the last resort And so he would rather lurk in the shadows, never to be seen while destroying your soul. So how does Satan spiritually and sometimes physically manifest himself in individuals? We talk about it in two distinct ways. First is called possession. 
And the second is oppression. I'm going to speak first about demon possession. It's when a person is controlled and possessed by Satan or his demons. Now, you might be thinking, that's just pure fantasy. Well, here's the thing. If you don't believe in the Bible, then I can see why you think that demon possession is fantasy. But really then, it isn't about whether you believe in demon possession. It's about whether you believe in the Bible. And that's a whole different topic, which we won't cover today. But here's what you must recognize. You cannot say, I believe in the Bible, but I do not believe in demon possession. Those two just do not go together. So let's begin with the assumption that there is a such thing as demon possession because the Bible tells us so. And because the Bible tells us so, we believe it. And also, the Bible never says that demon possession is only for a certain time. Again, we're looking at a passage where Paul is saying this is a spiritual war. This is a cosmic spiritual clash between Christ and the dominion of this world and the prince and ruler of this world. And so because of that, we also believe that it happens today. So we're going to ask a few questions regarding demon possession. First, who is it that can be demon possessed? According to the Bible, it's those who do not know Christ. Now, I don't think this means that every unbeliever is demon possessed. The flesh that is our sinful heart, the world and all of its influences and all of its, its allures and temptations, that's enough as well as Satan's external deceptions. Those three working in concert together can surely lead someone astray and keep them hard-hearted away from Christ. So that doesn't necessarily mean that a, inherently a non-believer is demon-possessed. But there are those special occasions when in some way Satan and his demons decide to possess a person. And this act is usually forced upon the person. The next question we're going to answer is what? What happens to such a person? We can look at what happens to different people in the New Testament to see and understand what happens, what demon possession actually does look like. First, there's a sort of a, a radical, erratic, almost insane, hurtful behavior. In the New Testament, we see different people demon possessed and they have some terrible physical and psychological manifestations. The women are going to study Mark chapter 5 tomorrow, and you're going to look at the garrison man who's living amongst the tombs, cutting himself with stones. There's a boy in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, where he's throwing himself into the fire. I mean, those are surely very extraordinary manifestations that in some way reveal one aspect of a demon-possessed person. Another one is physical ailments. Know this, not all illnesses and sicknesses are due to demon possession. But it would be unwise and unbiblical to assume that it never happens. There was a man in Luke eleven fourteen who was mute because of a demon. In Matthew four twenty four, we are told this. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You could read the demonic activity in this verse 
separate from the physical ailments. But it would seem, especially in light of other uh, other biblical texts, that there is an overlap between physical and spiritual. I know in a scientific naturalistic world like ours, it is so easy to dismiss the spiritual aspect of physical ailments and automatically assume that never happens. Again, I'm not saying every physical ailment is because of a spiritual problem. There are secondary causes to physical ailments. But again, it would be to your peril to dismiss something that Jesus and the apostles not only taught, but they physically encountered in their ministries, people who are physically ill due to demonic activity. This reality should make clear for us that when we pray for those who are sick, we should also pray for the Lord's protection. We should pray for the Lord's protection against Satan and his schemes. Again, I have to emphasize this one more time to qualify it. It is not to say that every single person who is sick, who has some sort of disease, is because of spiritual demonic activity. But it is to say that it is possible that because of spiritual demonic activity, a person can have physical ailment. Remember that this struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. He is the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. If that is the case, we see also in Job that there is an allowance for Satan to even rule and act this way. So always when you pray over an ill person, when you pray over yourself, Pray against the enemy and his powers. Pray for healing, not just physically, sovereignly within the Lord's providence, which he does do many times, but also pray that any power of Satan would be destroyed, would be taken away. Another aspect of what happens to this person is there's an extraordinary strength Physical strength, that is. Luke records this account in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Not only, I mean, there's a humorous aspect to this passage, but what it does show is that there is a power, a physical strength that demons have because they are spirit beings. They are not limited by physical, natural law. And so because of that, when they possess a person, they can do great harm and damage. There, I've heard of numerous accounts of demon-possessed people who possess even a young girl or someone very small, very frail, very thin, and yet their strength is, is tremendous. It's certainly not unheard of. If you believe in the spiritual realm, you have to actually recognize this. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about just some of these ex supernatural, extraordinary events next week. Lastly is there's a remarkable knowledge. Whenever Jesus passed by people demon-possessed, they would cry out, such as Luke 4.41, You are the Son of God. 
In Acts 16, 17, a fortune-telling girl who was actually good at telling fortunes, which is why people were so upset when um, Paul and Silas cast the demon out, she actually knew things. She said, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I don't think that demons and Satan, they not, not, not that I don't think, I know, they are not omniscient. They don't know all things in the way that God knows them. But their numbers are great. They are regularly observing. If you ever uh, talk to a husband or a wife who has lived, say, 50, 60 years together, when they've spent so much time together, uh, nonstop, they can almost predict what the other person is going to say. They know what they want to wear and they know what they want to eat. In other words, the more you spend time together, the more you know pretty much what they're thinking, how they're going to act, how they're going to behave, what are their temptations. Well, these demons are spiritual beings that are always there, never taking a break, tireless, observing, watching. That observing, watching in and of itself is a knowledge. It's a really powerful knowledge. And when they can possess, they can actually gain entrance into the thoughts and ideas of a person. And so it's not so far-fetched to imagine that people who are fortune tellers or diviners have some ability because of demonic activity and knowledge to be able to understand due to all sorts of connection and coordination between demons. Again, this is something we'll talk much about next week. George was telling me a story, George Neiman was telling me a story of the time he entered a village in the DRC. The DRC is a place where their main language is, if you go into villages and communities, they're tribal languages. And then they also speak French as the main national language. As he was walking by a little girl, she looked up and spoke in English to him and said, we know you and we know why you are here in English. Now that's telling because that's not so far-fetched. It actually does happen quite often, especially when there, again, is spiritual activity where there's a pursuit of Christ. The big question then becomes, why? Why does this happen? Why does demon possession actually happen? There are a number of possible reasons. There's the off occasion where people actually invite demons into their lives, literally through occult and satanic worship. So that's one reason. Secondly, if it isn't literally Satan, satanic worship, there is a certain type of inviting of so-called spirits into people due to fortune-telling, divining, shamanism, even even occult hobbyism, such as Ouija boards and all sorts of things. Again, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but this is more the exception, not the rule. Most of the time, it's due to an involuntary welcoming. One thing we know about demons is that when you open the door, when the door is left open, and there's no security, just like any physical thief, they will come in. Some of you might remember the club. The club was a, a red metal rod a long time ago before alarm systems where you stuck it on your steering wheel and you locked it and it locked your steering wheel. It wasn't foolproof, but the hope was that some thief would go and the reason why they made it so red 
is that a thief would could see it so quickly through the window and say, ah, forget it. This one's too much trouble. I'll go to the next car that doesn't have the club. And that's sort of the same idea with home alarm stickers, beware of dog signs. It's always the idea that, to, one, to show that this house is protected. And as even if you don't have a home alarm or a, a dog, you want to put it up there because to say, ironically, it's to say, go over to that one. That one's not protected. It's very much the same way. It aligns with how Jesus describes demons in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 and 45. When Jesus says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. In other words, a demon has been expelled, exercised, and is looking around. And then it comes back and says, I'm going to look. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. There's no lock. There's no club. And so then it goes in and it brings seven more, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. It's not good enough for a demon to be exorcised from a person. If that house, if that dwelling, if that heart has not been filled with a protector, an alarm, then it's even more dangerous than before. Demons enter en masse when there is no protection. The door is open. The Christian has a protector, and his name is the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He draws you to Christ. He is the sovereign Lord protector of your heart. He keeps demons out, and he never fails to do so. That's why Christians can't be possessed, because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. And there's no room for a demon. Oppressed, yes. Possessed, no. This also reveals something about the why Satan manifests himself most when Christ-exalting spiritual activity is growing, when the gospel is being truly proclaimed, when it is advancing. When Jesus begins his ministry, Satan and his demons are radically at work, more than ever before in any point in history, in any time past, present, or future. Satan tempts Jesus. He even possesses Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples. In Luke 22.3, we read, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Satan tried his utmost to stop Jesus. But every satanic act actually fulfills God's sovereign, gracious plans to save sinners. We read this so clearly in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, so that everyone's against him, which Satan is inciting, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God is sovereignly using even the evil purposes of Satan and his schemes. That's an incredible amount of comfort for us. You never have to doubt that Satan has ultimate control. He doesn't. That is good news. This is also what happens today. 
not just during Jesus' time, but today. It's why if you go into the mission field, if you go into places where it is most dark and you are sharing Christ, you're bringing the gospel, get ready for opposition. Do not think that it's going to happen so easily. There's a stronghold. There is an enemy. There is a strong man who is holding on tightly to his kingdom. And he's going to do whatever he can to make sure that he never loses grip or control. And so Christians in the mission field proclaiming Christ here at home, wherever they are, they are on the offensive, not the defensive. We're always on the offensive. We're proclaiming Christ when we're embracing the gospel and we're telling other people about Jesus. The reason why you face opposition is not because people naturally hate the gospel. It's because there's a spiritual war and there is a natural opposition based on demonic satanic activity against the gospel spread. When you're trying to reclaim territory for the gospel, the cockroaches, they start coming out of the oven. The light is turned on. The, the safe place for those cockroaches are now revealed and they all start scattering and fleeing. George shared with me another story where recently a woman who was abused, they were praying over her and she began to behave like a snake and her voice started changing. I mean, that's truly what happens when you're trying to reclaim territory for Christ is the enemy is revealed. When Jesus is being glorified, when people are being saved, when the gospel is being proclaimed, there is, there is a, um, a parasite that is being expelled from the body. The gospel is the deworming medicines that's forcing all those parasites being expelled out of the body. And Satan and his demons, they do not go without a fight. My friends, Please heed this. Let us not fear the manifestation of demons and Satan. Instead, let us fear far more when there is no manifestation of demons and Satan. You know, here's the, here, here's what it means. When there is no opposition from Satan, when there is only silence, it means he feels so safe. It means that the church is so powerless lifeless, dead. It means that we're not proclaiming Christ. We're making zero impact. When you don't see Satan at work, when you don't face opposition, physical, due to society, due to the powers that be, when there's no opposition, it means Satan feels so comfortable because the church is actually doing the bidding of Satan himself. He faces no threat at all from the church, from us. So instead, let us hope, I know this is odd, but let us hope that we actually do see opposition from the enemy. That means we're proclaiming Christ, we're believing, we're trusting, we're enjoying, we're delighting, we're, we're advancing the kingdom. Oppression. Much of what we've spoken about for the last two weeks when it comes to Satan's activity is about the oppression of Satan against Christians, the attacks, especially against the mind and heart. We'll get into this area much more when we discuss the flaming darts of the enemy in Ephesians 6.16. But you must realize that demons attempt to oppress you by various means. 
I'll cover a few. The first is false teaching. We spoke about this last week. We'll continue to talk about this. We might not think of false teaching as oppression, but this false teaching of the Bible actually gains a foothold on your heart and your mind. It's every reason why you have to study the Bible and always go back to it and interpret it in light of Scripture itself, sola scriptura. We see this in 1 Timothy 4.1. Paul warns Timothy, listen to Timothy, uh, Paul's warning to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, which is our time, some will depart from the faith by, by how? What's the means? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You see, we think of listening to false teaching as just listening to a person. But Paul's saying it's not a person you're listening to. It's the teaching of demons. Demons are engaged in confusion. It's one of their tactics. And what are they trying to confuse you with? The Bible, God's word. They want you to forget it. They want you to not remember. They want you to never go back to the Bible and actually study it and understand it and delight in it. They want you instead to read every source of news, every magazine, listen to what Instagram says, listen to all the stuff that's on Facebook and social media. They want you to read all sorts of books on romance, on, you know, on world cultures, whatever it might be, but just not the Bible, anything but the Bible. Because once you go to the Bible, you can really, you can really begin to understand false teaching. Second, Satan works to hinder you from trusting God and fulfilling his plans in your life. Hindrance. He does this to Paul in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. What hindered Paul? How did Satan hinder him? Was it illness? Possibly. Was it the authorities? Possibly. Was it people's deceptions? Possibly. Was it other plans? Possibly. Was it bureaucracy? Possibly. Was it bad people? Possibly. Know this is that when you decide to follow God and trust him, when you decide to make decisions that are going to be costly to yourself, but are going to worship Christ and follow him, when you decide to turn away from sin, there are going to be a million hindrances to that. If you decide to spend time, I'm going to serve the Lord overseas. Well, get ready for a thousand thoughts to come into your mind as to why that's a bad idea. If you decide that you're going to follow Christ by what you study, what your job is, and suddenly a new job comes along, more money, and you've already made a commitment, you've made a, a pursuit to say, I'm going to live this way. If you decide I'm going to live more simply and financially give more of my money away to areas where the kingdom will grow, you will find a hundred other ways coming where you can actually spend that money for yourself and more investments, more ways to grow. Know that every time you pursue Christ, you're always going to be hindered in another direction. 
This is oppression. It's Satan's way of saying, I'm going to stop you. He does not want you to know Jesus more. I think clearly hands at work is facing this right now. And I know, um, I know George said he's watching this. Please pray for him. Pray for hands. I mean, there is a real injustice that's happening due to demonic forces. Are there physical bureaucratic forces? Yes. Are there religious authorities? Yes. But behind all that ultimately is spiritual machinations and schemes and strategies, demonic forces at work, which is why you and I have to pray for them. Our prayers God uses, we're going to see as we cover this, pray at all times with all kinds of prayer in the spirit. We, and the Lord uses that. He protects through those prayers. He uses that as a means. So we need to pray. Pray for our building. We have faced so much opposition due to, whether it's the HOA, due to contractors and um, just the, just different things that have come up all throughout this whole process. Even those of us who are constructing, there's been just random spiritual attack Please pray for the protection of those who are involved, of Eddie, of Derek, um, of our building team. Pray for God's spirit to protect us. Uh, the reality is, this is good news. <laughs> I'm so thankful that Hands is being attacked. I'm so thankful that Wellspring is being attacked. Because if everything was smooth sailing and we were just getting rich and big and we were able to build without anything, I would think, I guess we're not making an impact for Christ. So as difficult as it is, as we persevere and trust and persist in the Lord, we know that God is at work. God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the gospel is being proclaimed and Satan hates it. He despises it. He is working against it. And what he, the thing that he wants to do is disunify, destroy. But little does he know that the more he does that and the more God's people comes together on their knees crying out and saying, Lord, we need you. Oh, how God is glorified in that. Next is anger. Really all sin ultimately. Remember Paul's warning again in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul is writing this to Christians, to me and to you. That is, we can take our anger and open our hearts to demonic oppression to keep us from trusting in Jesus. And we have to be always, always on alert when it comes to sin. You know, this past week, uh, my family and I, we went on a, a very short vacation to Southern California. We stayed at a hotel, middle of the night, at 1.30 in the morning, there was so much noise. Um, we couldn't sleep. And it was just maddening <laughs> in a certain way. And the next morning, I got up and I walked right by the door, their door. And it had the do not disturb sign. So it was, it was early in the morning. And they were obviously sleeping because they were up so late. I so was tempted to take that sign off their door. And take it with me because I wanted the housekeeping to go in there and wake them up. I mean, it was a battle. I was, I was so angry at that when I saw that sign. It just, and I was battling, Oh Lord, 
I know this is the enemy's schemes. I know he wants to be angry. And instead, I just, by God's grace, not because I'm, I always win. I don't. But by God's grace in that instance, I didn't do that. Just prayed because I knew actually to do that would give the devil a foothold. Really? That it's see every day of every moment of our lives is an opportunity. Am I going to trust the Lord? Am I going to give the devil a little bit of a crack in my heart so that he can prompt more? He can press me more. He can make me more frustrated, more angry, more ungracious, more irritable. Let us not yield to Satan that easily. Lastly is accusation. In Revelation 12.10, we're told, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is tireless. Day and night he's accusing me and you. He is tireless. He never goes physically tired because he's a spirit. And he's accusing me and you of our sins. You know, the thing is, he knows our sins. He knows our darkest sins. We can't hide it from him because he's a spirit. And because he's watching, his demons are watching, right? And the more you are following Christ, the more he's watching, the more he's attacking. Here's the thing is, he is regularly saying to God, this person is a failure doesn't deserve grace. He's saying it to you and he's saying it to God. He's laughing at you and at God for loving you. He's saying you're not good enough. He's saying God will not forgive you. He's saying you're a failure. And he's attacking you over and over again. That's how he oppresses all of these. I know that sounds bleak. If we believe the Bible to be true, we must not dismiss the role of Satan and his demons. So what keeps us safe? Why can Paul say with such assurance in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors when we face so much? I believe every Christian needs to memorize Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm going to read from uh, memorized because I memorized the NIV version. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Memorize that. It's what keeps you safe. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When Jesus died, when he saved you and me, when he called you his own, he lives in you. We know he loves us. We don't ever have to doubt that. Do you, can you imagine this? He lives in you so much. He knows everything you do wrong. He knows every thought. If Satan knows your thoughts, he knows far more than Satan ever would know. He knows every sin. He knows every sinful thought. He knows what you dream. But yet, he loves you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. Not just when you were clean and when you're born again. He gave himself for you when you were broken, rebellious, an enemy. And every time Satan encountered Jesus, what did the demons do? 
they fled. They were, they were shaking. They were trembling. They were scared. That's what you have. The person in you, Satan and his demons are afraid of him. They're so afraid of him that according to John in Revelation 29 through 10, John says, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever. Satan has lost. Jesus has won. I love how Martin Luther describes it in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What is that one little word? Liar. You must shout that to him every day of every moment. You're a liar. It is a word of freedom, of power, of faith, because it says that I know the truth. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. We tremble not for him, for lo, his doom is sure because he loved me and gave himself for me. May you know this to be true.